Hello and welcome back to another episode. Today I have a special guest. Uh, his name is Mark Dominic. Mark, could you introduce yourself to the show? Hey, uh, what's going on, man? Um, Mark Dominic, I'm an athletic trainer. I work with the D1 baseball program at UNCW, University of North Carolina, Wilmington. I've been certified as an athletic trainer since 2014. So I guess it's my seventh year of being certified, seven and a half. Um, and uh, yeah, I bounced around a few different jobs in, in grad school and things like that. And uh, finally settled down with UNCW. This will be my fifth school year at UNCW starting this fall. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, so let's get, let's get things started. Uh, first off, uh, Mark, where are you from? And what got you into uh, athletic training? Uh, I grew up in Maine, um, which not too many people actually make it out of the state of Maine. And if they do, not too many make it further than, um, say, Boston or New England. Um, that's not a knock on anybody. It's just kind of, you know, people have a tendency to stick around up there. So usually when I tell people I'm from Maine, they're like, oh, you're the first person I've met from Maine. Yeah. But um, no, I played sports growing up. I have four older brothers. They all played sports. I was always around it. Um, I was pretty good at baseball, at least I like to think I was, and never really had a chance to play in college. Um, I could have maybe tried a walk-on situation, but there was going to be no scholarship money to it, and, you know, um, college can already get pretty expensive as is, so without any added benefit to the time I would have been spending as an athlete, it just wasn't worth my personal investment um, to try and pursue it when there was no guarantee of anything. Um, and so when I was in high school, I kind of wanted to stick around sports just because I had enjoyed my time playing sports and stuff like that. And um, a bit of a personal background, my dad has MS. And so um, there's a lot of times growing up where I'd had to help him physically with some different things. And I think that kind of inclined me to find where those two avenues met, where I could help people and potentially in a bit of a physical sense, help people, people who were in some way or another disabled. Um, and then also my background was sports. And fortunately my high school had some kind of career courses that had us take like personality surveys and stuff like that. And there was something that kept coming up in these personality surveys that was athletic training. And to be honest at the time, I had no idea what it was. There was no athletic trainer at my high school. Um, I kind of internally um, confused it with like a personal trainer or like a sport coach or something like that. Because uh, I remember we had to do a shadow day and I went and shadowed somebody who was basically just like a baseball coach, you like paying for an hour of hitting lessons or something like that. But I thought that was something like athletic training at the time. Um, was quite wrong with that. But that was the avenue I was going. So I started looking at schools for athletic training or sports medicine. Ended up going to Quinnipiac, which is a small D1 in Connecticut. And um, I really like their program. I love their campus and location super expensive but it made it worth it in the long run for me as a great at program i did that for undergrad um things have changed a little bit since then so now athletic training is a master's degree to get yeah. into the field at the time it was a bachelor so i was able to do my bachelor's degree in athletic training as i got into it i liked it more and more so even though i kind of stumbled into it initially not knowing what the heck it was um as i started to learn more about it i i really enjoyed it and um and yeah, so that, that's kind of how I got into athletic training specifically. Yeah, so you so you mentioned that athletic training is a, is a master's degree now. So if someone was seeking to get involved uh, and, and wanted to be an athletic trainer, 
um, what would you what would you recommend that they do in undergraduate to prepare themselves for that graduate degree? Yeah, it's um, the reasoning for moving to master's is, is probably too complicated to start discussing in here. It's kind of somewhat controversial within athletic training. Some people think we should have stayed. Some people are, are for it. And um, but um, as far as trying to set yourself up for that path, I would say I don't I can't speak to specific requirements as far as like what actual courses to take. That's something that people have to research um, and find a accredited athletic training master's program. Um, you can use the NATA, the National AT Association, and start with that website and find your way to look up um, accredited programs and that sort of thing. Um, and once you find a program that interests you, then you need to look at what's required of them. So, um, you know, one of, um, again, I, I don't know specifics on what courses are needed, but they might require more, you know, an extra chem class than what you were originally planning to take or um, obviously anatomy and bio, it's going to be pretty science heavy in general, yeah. but most of the time people technically, again, depending on the program you look at, technically you can, I think major in most anything for undergrad, as long as you fit those specific requirements to get into the program. So you could be a English major, and then you tack on whatever particular sciences are required for an AT masters. And, and as long as you meet those required sciences, you could apply. Um, but most often and what's going to be most beneficial and set you up for the most success is to look at something like exercise science. Um, that would definitely be a big one. Um, some variations of physical education could help you out. Something that's going to put you in the direction of some sciences, maybe tie in some kind of anatomy and some sort of the, you know, human body movement problem, um, including that somewhere in the course load. Any undergrad degree that'll include those topics will definitely help set you up for success in the AT program. But as far as specifically what courses you need to take and how to tailor it, that might be dependent on what master's program you're interested in. And, and you, you'd have to do a little bit of research on that. Yeah. So you mentioned that there's like a little debate on if it should be graduate degree or if it should be undergraduate. And that's kind of like a, um, a trend in all of, um, well, I kind of break it down in three categories. There's physical education, there's exercise science and the sport management piece of it. So each three are kind of like all encompass this big field that we're all in. Mm -hmm. And uh, as the field is progressing, I see a lot more, um, a lot more focus towards the graduate level things because we're academic heavy um, mm -hmm. in, in this field or we're, we're starting to become more academic heavy. Like, for example, there's a lot more academic journals that you can find um, in, our, in our field on things. And, and the research that has been done in, in AT specifically has, has increased dramatically in the last couple of years so on in like in that debate where do you fall do you think it should be more of a graduate program or do you think it should be undergraduate or do you kind of see weight in both of it um yeah I, I definitely can understand both sides that's that's something that um as part of being an athletic trainer we can get into this a little bit more later but part of what i would say is an important skill in the job is kind of understanding both sides of a, of a situation so I'm prone to do to be like that, but um, it is it's difficult. I wouldn't be, want to be the one making the decisions on on making the move or not. Uh, what happens for athletic training specifically is when it's an undergrad degree, most programs split up your time in undergrad. Some do they call it like a pre-professional professional phase. Yeah. Uh, again, going back to when I went through my program, and so some schools used to do like a two-year pre-professional phase and a two-year professional phase. And in those 
pre-professional years, you're taking like your anatomies and kind of everything to set the stage um, to then take on the skill set that's specific to athletic training. And then the professional phase is obviously like your injury evaluation and your rehabilitation and all that kind of stuff and the manual skills. Um, some schools, it was a one-year pre-professional and three-year professional um, or two and two. Um, and so, but in that time where it's a little bit more spread out, no matter how you break it down, um, like for me, I can't remember the exact number now, but I want to say I had over 3000 clinical hours as a student wow. in my undergrad, um, a lot of time. Right. And that's obviously like several hundred each semester. Part, part of that was, sorry, my dog's going to randomly bark. Things. I knew this was You're good. You're good. Um, part of that was specific to like the sports I was assigned to work with, plus like how my class schedule worked out. So that's the hours I put in, I wouldn't say were a normal amount of hours, um, they definitely weren't the minimum and they were probably uh, well above average. Um, so was that required of you or did you seek that out yourself? So yeah, the clinical hours are required and this still applies for the master's program too. So it's kind of like um, nursing or most medical fields where you have to have time with hands-on experience and in the field and interacting with people and all that good stuff. So that's the clinical aspect of it. Um, and again, it's the same, the requirements and the timing is different being a master's program as opposed to again the undergrad. But the idea of doing clinical hours is very much the same. And there's requirements from the certifying body of the uh, board of certification, the BOC and the NATA, the National AT Association, there's requirements you have to meet where you have to do like a contact heavy sport in your clinical rotations. You have to do a lower body dominant and upper body dominant, et cetera. Um, but it, again, in my undergrad, it was spread out. Uh, I had particular situations where I could take advantage of more hands on time um, than some of my classmates. So it amounted to a lot of time and uh, I'm grateful for it. I think it really helped me develop professionally. And then in addition to that, because it was an undergrad degree, I still had room to get a master's degree. Yeah. And so um, at the time, there were graduate assistant positions where essentially you apply to grad school. Um, two things have to happen simultaneously. You have to get into grad school, whatever school we're talking about. For me, it was Eastern Kentucky. So I had to get into grad school into the master's program. That's right. And uh, I had to also at the same time apply for a job in the sports medicine department. And then obviously, if you get into school and you're hired for a job, you get the GA position where my um, uh, tuition is covered. Um, and then I get paid a small living stipend um, with no benefits. It's just a stipend. It's, it's basically like a, a grant in some ways. Um, and that was the old path. So you get, for me, it was a three-year professional program or maybe two and a half, technically, something like that. But it's spread out a little bit. Yeah. I got a ton of hours in undergrad and then I go to grad school where I'm certified. I'm nationally certified and I have a state medical license to do what I do. Um, but I'm a GA, so I'm not a full-time employee yet. So I still have two years where at Eastern Kentucky, I was in charge of the baseball team. So I was the only athletic trainer working with the baseball team. I was under direct supervision. Um, so there's kind of a guardrail there for safe for safety, but you know, just mentorship, et cetera. Um, and then uh, I continue to obviously develop professionally, then, you know, go on from there. And that's kind of the old path, if you will. Yeah. And then the new path is, as I said before, um, let's say undergrad in exercise science or something similar. And then you get into grad school for athletic training. And because it's grad school, the courses are slightly more in depth, slightly more elevated. There's a little bit higher expectations because it's grad school. And, and I, I don't mean that to intimidate anyone that's across the board, you know, any program, if you do an undergrad in 
journalism and a master's in journalism, that master's is clearly going to be some elevated form. Um, so that's true anywhere. And then, but your total time is condensed slightly to two years. They do summer sessions with most programs. So that helps a little bit, but it's their total times condensed slightly, um, which means fewer total clinical hours. Um, and when you graduate with your master's degree in athletic training and you're now certified, some places are have um, internships available. A lot of places are calling it um, like a fellowship and they'll include some professional development courses along with that. Um, it's basically like the next version of a graduate assistant position without a degree attached to it. Um, but there's far fewer of those internship situations than there were graduate assistant positions. Yeah. So again, with the masters, you graduate and more of them are going straight into the workforce as opposed to having that two year GA figuring things out, continue to develop situations. So theoretically, you're getting students who are more committed to athletic training because they have to get a master's in it. It's not as easy as just getting an undergrad in AT and then bouncing straight into a PA school or something like that. Um, so you're getting theoretically individuals who are more dedicated to the profession. Um, you're getting an elevated degree, which um, helps you mention the research a little bit. It kind of helps bump the perception of the research. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say I is that that's true of all the professions yeah i mean it it's an exciting time to be involved in sports um just that there's just so much more research outside of just being a spectator and an, and an athlete um there, there's so much there's so much thing so much more things that could happen um just like you mentioned mm -hmm. there it, just the field is elevating academically at such a rapid pace i mean because you could say like 10 years ago this was a completely different pathway Oh, yeah. you know, we're not talking like it was 50 years. You were talking about within a decade that this is this has changed so rapidly. So that's that's all, that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So we uh, we kind of discussed a little bit. We touched a little bit about some of the skills that are necessary um, for you to become an athletic trainer. Um, but I would like for you to go just a little bit more in depth into uh, what skills that you think are necessary for, for someone who, who is going to be an athletic trainer, who, who wishes to be an athletic trainer, like what do you think they, they need to be competent in their field? Um, I, would, I would divide that into um, slightly into two categories, just because when I think of skill set, I think of kind of my professional skill set, which is acquired through getting the degree and, and time spent in your clinicals and that sort of thing, the hands-on, like how do I do this kind of side. And then the, the other side, the professional skill set, which could be applied to any number of jobs. Um, I mentioned briefly when athlete training was an undergrad degree, um, people would kind of take that as a launching pad to go to PA school or whatever else. Um, it was actually super popular because athletic training does require a pretty broad skill set, I would say, that will allow you to be successful in most any field afterwards. So um, talking specifics, um, being highly flexible and not only flexible as in able to accept changes and adaptations, but then also being able in order, uh, flexible beyond just accepting changes, but also being able to adapt and, and uh, work around or work with those changes too. So it's one thing to just be okay with being like the tail end of the whip and you're the last to get information and yeah. things change suddenly and you just go with the flow. That's one thing, but then um, not being 
super upset with that and also being able to try and either fix the situation or, or somehow, you know, be slightly more proactive around it is what would separate an average AT from a good AT or a great AT because working baseball, I'm dealing, you know, with weather, which is a huge, just random, <laughs> it is what it is, right? Um, coaches who all have different agendas. Um, I mean, you know, even within a staff, you have a pitching coach and a hitting coach, let's say on a baseball team. And the hitters want to do one thing one day that might include them being on the field. And then the pitchers want to do something else that includes them being, you know, in our indoor facility or something like that. Um, and then last second weather changes and they flip or whatever. So like having that flexibility. Um, also, it's necessary because of obviously injuries that come up, you know, you're, you you kind of have one plan and in, in place to deal with somebody's injury or post-op situation or whatever. And then, um, injuries aren't there's injury prevention is like a big topic and, and subject, but in my opinion, um, it's extraordinarily difficult to really kind of, um, pinpoint what injury prevention is because there's so many factors that go into an injury. You, there's no way to control them all. So there's things you can do to help somebody, but like you can't control them all. And, it, and they often just happen, which means again, that flexibility of being able to just deal with those changes and not only accept them, but actively adapt to those changes uh, is pretty important. Uh, communication is massive as an athletic trainer. Um, I mentioned it briefly before, but you're talking with coaches, not only a single coach, but multiple coaches for one sport. You're talking with the athlete themselves. You're talking sometimes with parents, if you're dealing with minors, and even if you're not dealing with minors, parents are always going to be curious and involved with their, with their child um, or guardians or whatever it may be. Um, sometimes rarely, but you might have bump-ins with media in certain situations in this field. Um, you might have bump-ins with um, spectators. Um, with the program I work with, position I'm in, scouts, professional scouts are another one that I'll interact with from time to time. And because I'm on the medical side, I always have HIPAA in the back of my head. So I hey, what's up, guys? This is Devin speaking. So when Mark brings up HIPAA, HIPAA stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. It was made in 1996 by President Clinton. Basically, what the HIPAA Act does is ensures that medical providers do not give out medical information to people that the clients don't want it to to be so this is very important in sports meaning that you would not be able to give out medical information to people that the athlete or the who, the athlete in this situation the client did not want it to so that's all it is if you want to search it hipaa spelled h-i-p-a-a -A, that's hipaa um, other than that i just want to give you a brief explanation of what it was so let's get back to it to carefully navigate those restrictions um but not just the amount of people you talk to and kind of the different angles they're approaching it with but also the way you communicate with them so what i explain to a coach is going to be different to what i explain to an athlete which is going to be different to what i explain to mom and dad and it's all the same information i have to convey but the way that they receive it and understand it is vastly different and what if mom is a nurse you know she's going to come at you with different questions and whatever than someone else might so Communication is absolutely huge. Um, That's what I was going to ask you about, and I'm glad you brought that up. Is like yeah. having those challenging, difficult conversations from different perspectives. So, um, as listeners know, I, I played college. I did college athletics as well, and I had I had an injury that required surgery. 
and having having those conversations um maybe sometimes the athlete doesn't want to know like doesn't want to hear what you have to say <laughs> but and which is which is fine but you know or maybe a coach doesn't you know maybe wants to rush a process and you know you're the con- you're the content expert in this field how do you navigate having uh, those difficult conversations between uh, particularly between the athletes and the coaches yeah that um it isn't, but that alone could be an entire college course. Um, it's just the intricacies and nuances of some of the situations and conversations I've had to deal with are just endless. I mean, um, just kind really, of building really, a I'm sorry. It's, it's like really odd. because no, no. It's like you're like on the coaching staff, but you're not really on the coaching staff, but you're looking out for the right. best interests of the players at the same time. So you're kind of stuck in the middle. Right. So um, I used to work at Ohio State for a time being and um, – they um, they kind of laid it out in a way that really made a lot of sense to me. And I've, um, I've tried to push this, I guess you could call it a model, um, into other places I've worked and, and bring it with me, if not just personally on my own and how I deal with situations. But then also there are some ways you can kind of systemically set things up to represent this model. But they call it the hub of the wheel model, where if you can imagine like an old timey wagon wheel, right? And in the center, you have the athlete. And then kind of around the center, you would have the athletic trainer. And then all the spokes are the professors, the academics coordinator, the coaches. You know, there could be two or three coaches that work with this particular athlete, the mom and dad, um, you know, maybe an AD, the media, um, especially. And we may or may not touch on this later. It's not particularly my field, but NIL stuff that's coming up now with the name and likeness. Right. So like a lot of athletes have not necessarily an agent, but a representative of some kind. Um, so they got that person who's another spoke on the wheel. And you have all these different people who are going to be pulling the athlete in different directions and wanting certain information. And then in terms of medical stuff, like I said, the athletic trainer is what sits, it's kind of like the hub cap that sits around the very, very center of that wheel. And so everything gets filtered through the athletic trainer from these different spokes and to and from the athlete. Um, and the way I kind of took that model and adapted it in my own head is like, I've often told people that if, if you were to write up everything I knew, which might not be a lot, but if you write up everything I knew, you know, in a book and skill sets and everything, you just wrote it down and like bullet pointed, I would venture to argue that 70 to 80% of what I know isn't above and beyond what like a normal person could and should learn about the human body. And then that 20 to 30% is slightly more nuanced and it's skill-based and it's experience-based and, and, and that's what I get paid for is how well I can use that. But the rest of it is like, you know, pretty raw anatomy and biomechanics and those types of things, which might sound like complicated subjects, but like a lot of it, it can be simplified. Right. So I try to take that part of my knowledge, that 70 to 80% and implant it in the athlete's head so that they have a better understanding of their own body. And then I can use my language to assist them in communicating what's going on. Um, and then I apply that 20 to 30% of my own experience and skill set on top of it. And then that's how we can come up with a plan of attack, et cetera. And then I use that to, you know, uh, redefine my language with these different spokes of the wheel. So hopefully that made a little bit of sense, but what it comes down to is those, I always have the athlete's interest first. Okay. There are some situations where you, 
you have to have a pretty high level of understanding with the athlete to really dig to the bottom of certain things. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I said, I always have their interest in mind first, but you know, if the athlete's holding themselves back and holding themselves out of activity, there's often a reason it's not just, I don't want to, it's, I don't want to because, and so the, the better understanding you can have and trust with that athlete to find that because the coach might not need to know why, but if I know why I can help that situation between you and coach, because there's going to be tension. If, if that athlete doesn't want to be totally honest with coach as terms of what's going on, it could be completely personal. It has nothing to do with sports. Um, and that's in today's that's, world. It could be, it could even be mental. It, yeah. You know, which is going huge, on. Which, yeah. Which is a whole different conversation in itself. Right. But right. like you're kind of like that navigator in between the two. Right. That's yeah. That's the model I try to to um, adapt and consider um, because you're basically I'm not speaking like different languages. Yeah. Well, I mean, sort of to an extent. I'm I mean, not, not like you know. It's not like you're speaking like you know Italian or something. No, like no, 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 no. But it's, but you but you are you're speaking the coach's language, which he's gonna understand or he or she's gonna understand best, and you're gonna understand, yeah. you're speaking the athlete's language, which they would understand the best, right. and. Yeah, I mean, which is which is kind of cool, but it seems like it could be like you have a lot on you have a lot on your plate. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, and and so another thing I always tell people that, and this is true in my opinion for any profession in any field, whatever. If you can't build strong relationships around you, you're going to make things very difficult for yourself. Now, there are some professions where you can get further than others, but as you can imagine, athletic training is obviously a people first uh, mm-hmm. profession. Um, my, my job is injury care prevention and rehabilitation. Well, none of those things exist without another human. Like I can't do anything in my job without another person to help or assist or whatever it is. Um, and so being so people first, I have to be able to build a positive relationship with someone else that isn't me, whether that's a coach or an athlete. And part of that is recognizing, okay, you're a coach. So you have these demands, you have these restrictions on what you want to accomplish and how you want to accomplish them. Um, and so I'm going to approach you because of the situation you're in slightly different, but I still need to have positive rapport between us and then kind of the same thing with athletes. So, um, if you can build a good relationship, then yeah, the athlete's willing to trust you more and tell you, Hey, this is why I really don't want to play. Like I'm worried that if I play now, like I don't feel quite 100%. I feel really good. I could go out and play and play if I had to, but I don't quite feel hundred percent. And I'm worried that if I go out there and I play at 90% coach will notice and bench me. And then I can't play this and that or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I hear you. Like I'm, I'm, I appreciate you cutting to the core of this. It's not just, I don't want to do that drill and I'm going to, you know, kind of become defensive and, and close in on myself and remove myself from team activity and things like that. But now I understand a lot better what's going on. And that only happens again. If you have that understanding, you can build a positive relationship long before the injury happens. Yeah. Have that positive relationship. And then I take that information. I go to coach and I say, Hey, listen, like, you know, we're at this point in this person's rehab. This is where we want to go. And coach most often, most coaches this is a huge generalization, but they are focused a lot on good coaches always have the interest of the athlete in mind, but they, there's no way getting around it. They also care about wins and losses. They can't, you can't be a coach in college athletics and not care whatsoever about wins and losses. It might be, you know, fifth on your priority list, but there's no coach in the country who doesn't have wins and losses on their priority list. It's part of the job, you know? So um, again, it's a big generalization, but it's part of the job. You just, you just can't avoid it. 
And so at some point or another, most coaches will respond to a conversation that has to do with in terms of productivity. You know, so-and-so, they're at about 90%, but based on what I'm seeing in their rehabs and stuff, I don't think they can perform X efficiently, whatever that is. You know, if we want to keep it in baseball terms, obviously there's multiple facets to baseball, throwing, hitting, running, catching, you know, running the bases, et cetera. And you can segment them slightly in practice and in games. So you only hit, you only, et cetera. So I have a lot of um, give and take to where I can say, okay, like this person's worried that, you know, their arm isn't fully ready to let it loose. And if they're in a game situation and they have to make a really hard throw, they're worried that they can't do that for you. And, um, and now that could cost the team a run or something like that. Yeah. And the coach is going to understand that. They're going to understand, like, you're right. If I put them in right field, it's a liability. This could happen. I don't like that either. And so the, the athlete may have been defensive or, or self-conscious or embarrassed or whatever to tell the coach that's how they feel and coaches wanting them to play because, you know, they're impact player or whatever. And then um, so you have to be able to bring those two together, even if it's through me and they don't aren't even the ones who actually talk. Yeah. So then you go. And then the other thing, too, is that's always good with problem solving in general is not just bringing you a problem, but bringing you a solution. That's just like a right. life lesson to learn for people. Oh, yeah. Like whatever yeah. profession you go into, you, like you don't bring people problems, bring them solutions. And exactly. So, yeah. So that ties in, too. So then I go to coach and say, but, you know, so far from what I've seen in rehab, he can hit, he can run the bases. Those are totally fine. Like, you know, if he's careful not to slide head first, so we protect that arm a little bit or something like he's fine. And coach says, OK, you know, like tomorrow is just a practice. It's not even a, a game against another team. So practice situations you can play around a lot more we'll just have him hit he won't even run the bases he'll just hit and coaches willing concede that much more because he understands what we're aiming towards in the long run yeah you know and then the athlete feels good and comfortable because they can maximize on the things they can do right now while giving themselves time to to really you know get ready for everything else so that's that's a brief hopefully clear example on how to you might need to bridge the gap in a pretty simple situation but like yeah. i said before when you when you add in scouts that are asking questions and when you add in um you know the the athlete's representative that's asking questions the athlete you know there might be a huge playoff game this weekend but if this athlete has potential for professional baseball they're not looking at the huge playoff game they're looking at a year down the line but at the same time they can't overlook that playoff game because that could make the difference between you know 10th round and ninth round which might yeah. be a lot of money or something so like it becomes so complicated and and that's not something you'd expect to handle on your own right out the gate as an athletic trainer. It takes a few years to yeah, just a lot really of practice and, them and learn to know what 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 all that is. And that's really good that you mentioned. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a big piece that I hope that people understand. So, um, but you know, moving forward a little bit, you've seen more baseball in the last how many ever so years than the average than than anyone that I know. Um, yeah. But you also had an, an awesome opportunity uh, this summer where you got to travel um, with the the National Collegiate Team. Yeah. Uh, so how was that experience? And, uh, you know, what you what, what can you take away from it? That was um, that was amazing. Um, it's always been a career uh, bucket list item of mine to be able to go to work, working in athletics, being able to go to work and have USA on my chest. Um and not, you know, a particular school or something else. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's just kind of like 
been a goal of mine. I always had a, a dream to either attend or work at the Olympics in some way. Um, and I didn't this summer, but um, this is hopefully a step in that direction at some point in my career. Um, it's an opportunity I never thought I would get. So uh, the story of how I got there was um, each year the USA baseball will select a collegiate coach to coach the collegiate national team. And um, as I understand it, I don't know how this process works, but as I understand it, when they pick the head coach, that head coach is involved in picking his support staff. So the assistant coaches and, and even the athletic trainer, um, rather than pairing that head coach up with people he's never met before. And, you know, you're having to, again, build those relationships in a very short period of time. And it's just, it adds complication. So I'm pretty sure they select a head coach. They're involved in picking their staff. It might not be like it, as far as I know, it, it, and I can only speak to my experience this summer, which I'll get to in just a second, but it's not necessarily. Um, so the coach I worked with was Coach Avent, the NC State head coach. Um, his team was just in uh, Omaha during the College World Series, which is like the Elite Eight for, um, for baseball. And um, they actually were in the Final Four. Um, and um, so it wasn't like they picked coach Avent and then just the entire NC state staff is who takes over USA baseball. It's a little bit of a collaboration between USA baseball wanting to maybe give other coaches a chance to navigate in this, in their system and network and things like that, as well as coach Avent wanting to bring. So for example, one of the coaches um, I worked with was a former player of coach Avent's who's now coaching at a different school. He wanted to bring him in to, to work with him a bit. So that's how that sets up. Coach Avent gets the call. Um, he wants to bring his athletic trainer who I've become good friends with since I got this job. And that athletic trainer was unable to join him with team USA. And apparently he gave them my name and they gave me a call when they found out he couldn't do it. Um, Look at you making now, good connections out there and networking. Exactly. So the funny thing is I've, I've never worked at the same institution as this friend of mine. Um, He's a great guy, great individual. He and I have had some wonderful conversations, um, talking shop essentially within our profession. And at some point along the way, the past few years, we play NC State every year. So again, you know, I, I see him at least once or well, actually typically at least twice a year. Um, and that's about it. <laughs> um, but along the along the past few years, those interactions, I was able to build up enough of a positive rapport with him that, you know, and it also helps that, Team USA's uh, base of training is in Cary, North Carolina, which is just outside of Raleigh, about two hours from where I am. So that that definitely played a role. You know, he wasn't I wasn't friends with him and I'm in California and he's in North Carolina and he calls me up. Um, now, USA would be willing to work with that travel, but it definitely helps that I was only a couple hours away. But um, it's just it was funny to me that um, I got the call out of nowhere. I was completely stunned when I did. I answered, hello, is this Mark Dominic? Yeah. Oh, this is such and such with USA baseball. You got a minute to talk? And I was like, I would have thought it was, I would have thought it was a prank call if I were you. I, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was completely out of nowhere. But um, you know, like I said before, again, being able to build positive relationships with people around you and somebody I'd never worked with just from you know knowing me as a as a person and having some professional shop talk. Um, not that he was, you know, putting his reputation on the line or anything quite like that, but um it was enough for him to feel comfortable saying you know i can't be there but why don't you call mark um so that's how i got it. it completely out of nowhere i wasn't looking for it it wasn't an opportunity that should have been given to me but it was and i was extremely grateful for it um it was a great chance so essentially the collegiate national team um 
for, for baseball is kind of finicky. You can either get drafted at a high school at 18 or you can get drafted when you're turned 21, which is typically after your junior year of college. Um, and then again, after your senior year, if you're not drafted after your junior year. So freshman and sophomore, unless you reclass and all that stuff, um, you're not draft eligible freshman and sophomore year in college. Um, you had your chance in high school and then you wait. Um, so the collegiate national team is made up of the best non-draft eligible college players across the country. So basically the best freshmen and sophomores across the country. There's a little bit of a negotiation process there. For example, if you have a pitcher who was used a ton all spring at his university and coaches want him to shut down for the summer, he's not going to then turn around and ramp it up for USA baseball. So they might give him a call and he says, ah, this is my throwing plan. I can't do that. And so it's not, it's not like they rank all the players and they take the top X. There's some give and take that's involved there. Um, but it was, it was an amazing opportunity to work with guys of that skill level. Um, I mean, future first round draft picks left and right, future number one overall draft picks possibly, those that caliber of player, that caliber of athlete. Um, and you're walking around the USA complex and you're seeing signs of, here's a list of, it's like 20 or 30 USA baseball alumni who were selected in the first round. Um, actually, I take that back. That might, that might be a list of first overall and there's like 15 guys that were taken first overall that came through USA, something like that. I mean, it's crazy. Um, the concentration of skill levels is pretty amazing. So I got to work with those guys for um, it's a total of like two and a half, three weeks ish this summer. Um, typically they'll play international competition where they'll, they'll fly like uh, Taiwan in and they'll play against the Taiwan team and, and they might fly down to Cuba or something like that. But due to COVID restrictions, they weren't doing international play. So they set up like an East versus West kind of competition and we traveled around um, the area and played in some different uh, stadiums doing East versus West. And then we finished out with a three game series against the Olympic team before they left for Tokyo. Um, and that's, that's how we finished out. Which they did. The Olympic team did, they did pretty well. For, for Silver medal is not bad. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not terrible for essentially for the roster that they had. It, it wasn't terrible. Yeah. I, yeah. Of course you would like to have the goal, but. You know, right, right. Yeah, I, I thought it was a good turnout, and it was cool. Like I said, for a three-game series, being in the other dugout from from those guys, and then going on to watch and see what they did. And and you mentioned, yeah, for the roster they had, that there's a lot of weirdness with use um, uh, international, specifically Olympic baseball, um, which obviously isn't in every Summer Olympics now. It's it's it was one of those sports that was added by Japan for this year, um, so it won't be in the next Olympics. But then I think the one after. Um, but MLB baseball doesn't take a pause. So their roster is comprised of a handful of not yets and a handful of has-beens. You know, it's it's a little bit older guys like Todd Frazier is one of the bigger names in the team who's past his prime, but still professional level. Um, he was a free agent at the time that he played with them. And then um, several minor leaguers who they have to have specific things in their contract to be able to take the time to go play USA baseball. And so that limits who USA baseball can pick from professionally to put on their roster. But, um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty awesome experience to, like I said, wear USA on my chest and I got to wear USA on my chest on July 4th and, and watch the guys go at it. And um, it was, it was an awesome experience. Just a little captain America, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I was um, able to pick some brains and, you know, rub shoulders with some interesting people. And, and uh, as far as like professionally, what I got out of it, it was, um, it was good to put myself in an environment where I wasn't comfortable. 
Um, I think that's important for personal and professional growth. And I haven't really had a specific opportunity for that in, in quite some time after being here at Wilmington and settling in a little bit. So it was good to have a chance to push myself like that. So looking at the, the future of athletic training, um, so you're looking at the future of athletic training. Um, what kind of trends do you see moving forward that, uh, that if someone was listening to this, that they should be prepared for? Oh, that is a great question. Um, it's easier for me to answer that question on kind of specific, I guess you'd say like treatment avenues. Um, and there's some things that, you know, most people would be somewhat familiar, familiar with. So over the past, let's say over the past 10 years, there have been 10 to 15 years, there've been, I would probably say three, like pretty major trends that most of the public is familiar with. Um, Graston technique is what it's, is what it's referred to as, but scraping is like the more common term, like those metal tools or like jade tools that you can get, um, that, you know, it's essentially like the backside of a butter knife. Um, and there's some different things you can use with that, but in general, as a, as a tool, as a, as a treatment trend, that was a big thing. And then kinesio tape, tape, KT tape, you know, the different strips of colored tape you see on, on volleyball players were the big one in the Olympics, um, in like 2004 or so. And then cupping was, um, the third major trend, I would say that, you know, you see the little circle bruises. Yeah, it makes it look like you got big pimples all over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they all have their merits and, you know, we don't need to get into the, when you do or when you don't and why you use them and all that stuff. There's, there's a lot to be had there, but those are just in terms of like very catchy, popular. One of the reasons that they're big and popular is because they're visible. Unlike a lot of treatments, you know, like you see the cupping bruises on someone, you know, they got cupped. Um, you don't see the hours of rehab and like fine tuning exercises that they do. And I, I know you're familiar with that kind of stuff. So oh my goodness. Yes. It, it takes yeah. it. I mean, what you all do it. I mean, it's you guys, you, your profession, you all do a ton. Um, which is kind of leading me to my last question here. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. So this last question is um, after it's all said and done um, and you, cause I know you, you had a blog for a little bit when you wrote about the, the profession, but when it's all said and done, um, what would you like for your mark to be on, to be in this profession or, you know, how would you like to, to be known for the, the impact you made in this profession? Yeah. Um, uh, real quick, I wanted to go back and touch on something that in the last question you reminded me of yeah, uh, skill, a skill set that would also be really important for athletic training is being creative. Um, we talked briefly about the like rehab side of things, and I think that's really important trying to accomplish, have a goal in mind, and being able to accomplish it and then changing the way you accomplish it based on restrictions, you know, whether that's injury restrictions from the athlete or whatever. And, and, you know, the same could be applied to what I was saying earlier about uh, adaptability, you know, like, whether like you want to work out with somebody outside with X, Y, and Z, and then bad weather comes in, now you got to go inside and that changes your equipment. Being able to creatively change the rehab that day and is pretty important too and used daily. But, um, all right. So what kind of mark would I want to leave? Um, I know, you know, I wouldn't say philosophical question. I know. Yeah, <laughs> that's man. So, I mean, they, they say that in athletic training, you should, you should never be in the spotlight. Because if you are, um, chances are something bad happened <laughs> if you're in the spotlight. Every now and then you'll catch a news story about 
you know, someone that's got to bring the AED out and, and defibrillate somebody on the court um, and some pretty extreme moments of heroism and bravery that, that come up in the news. And I love reading those stories. It's very um, encouraging. Um, but typically, you know, you're working the extra hours and, you know, depending on the time of the year, you show up to work when it's dark and you leave when it's dark sometimes. And that's just the nature of the biz um, for better or for worse. And so to be known is a, is a challenging subject to answer because it's not by nature um, common. So being known in the profession at all, in my opinion, hopefully for, you know, avoiding anything negative, yeah. just being known in the profession at all is um, and what for whatever I think is really impressive. Whether it's a system you create gets widely accepted and used and people know you because you're the guy who created that system or a particular device or um, more, I would say, I don't want to use this word, but more, a more powerful impact would even be just like being known for what you have to say, you know, like, mm-hmm talk about a philosophical answer like that's like heavy you know like being able to like you're the guy that they call for a conference and put you on a a panel of people to discuss something at a conference that brings in you know hundreds or thousands of people or something like that like why would you choose me for that and I haven't done that but I think that's something that would be kind of cool and I don't know I don't even know what I would have to do professionally to put myself in a position to do that but I don't know just being known for anything not negative um, is a pretty cool idea just because AT, like it's not a profession you get into to be famous or. Yeah, or the, the people that are known in AT, I mean, of course, right now, the, the there there's a particular athletic trainer that I'm thinking is in mind that, that has negative spotlight on the profession. Yeah. But, um, but for the for the vast majority of of athletic trainers that that are, that do this job it is a, it's a it's a thankless job a lot of the times but you all are, are really the backbone of a lot of athletic programs and so i want to thank you for your for your service and thank <laughs> you for your time for today i really appreciate it this has been this has been awesome i think it's been really helpful um for for people who who are interested in the profession to learn a little bit more get more insight and to like, you know, your day to day and what you do. So I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for having me, man. I, I appreciate it. Hopefully I made some sense somewhere in there and somebody will find something that they like to hear, but. Yeah, that's, this has been awesome. So until next time, uh, thank you. See you later.